What a great hymn. <clears throat> I would invite you to turn with me to Psalm 95. If you're privileged to have a copy of the Word, let's open that up. Psalm 95. Allow me to pray for myself today. Heavenly Father, we stand before you in this congregation this morning in weakness and fear and much trembling for the message that we are charged to preach must not be in persuasive words of man's wisdom, but rather a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power in order that our faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but only in always on the power of God. And it's to this desired end that we make our prayer today. Amen. Psalm 95 is a, is a part of a grouping of psalms called uh, enthronement or kingship psalms. And uh, <clears throat> they basically all declare the, the, that the Lord reigns. He reigns as king and judge over the whole earth. If you'll open your eyes, look back at Psalm 93 and verse 1, the Lord reigns. Uh, Psalm 94, uh, verse 1, verse 2, uh, rise up, O judge of the earth. Here in verse 3, the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. Uh, verse 10 of uh, Psalm 96, the Lord reigns. Say among the nation, the Lord reigns. Psalm 97, the Lord begins with, the Lord reigns. Psalm 98, uh, verse 6, shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Psalm 99 begins with, the Lord reigns, let all the people tremble. Psalm 100, shout joyfully to the Lord of all the earth. The Christian church has used this Psalm 95 over the centuries as a guide for worship. It, uh, it describes for us uh, how worship is to be done, what it's about. It stresses that it should always include things such as a word from God. Uh, it should include joyous singing and grateful prayer. It's interesting that there's no superscription uh, in this psalm. We, I love superscription. They'll tell us who wrote it or a little history or something like that. There's no superscription here but if you would turn over to the book of Hebrews <clears throat> in chapter 3 where it, the writer to the Hebrews quotes this psalm, uh, the last few verses of the psalm, but it also tells us <clears throat> in verse 7, it says, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, it quotes the psalm. So you'll notice that the, the one who inspired or wrote this is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Notice it's the Holy Spirit says, present tense. It's not past, but it's whatever the Holy Spirit says has continuing validity. It's not just for one occasion. Whatever He says, it, you can take that to the bank forever. The Holy Spirit says, and then it, it quotes the psalm. But then it says in verse uh, at verse 7 of chapter 4 in Hebrews, you look over there, he again fixes a certain day today saying through David. So the Holy Spirit speaking through this psalm, inspired psalm, the Holy Spirit speaking through David 
is his instrument. So while it's not actually here in Psalm 95, we're told in Hebrews 3 and 4, the Holy Spirit inspired this through David. <clears throat> Certainly, um, uh, it may be that this psalm has uh, to do with the the tabernacle, Feast of Tabernacles, because it's very closely related to Psalm 81. If you read that later, you'll see how they, they're pretty close. They mention the same things. Um, <clears throat> and um, it certainly commemorates the wilderness wandering. Uh, it mentions that here at the close of the psalm. But uh, <clears throat> some of the critics think, and you have to watch critics, you know, I... They write books. That doesn't mean anything. They, they write books. Uh, they use a lot of scissors and paste and they, they force their ideas and they, they try to move stuff around. But they've argued for two separate psalms, verses 1 through 7, and then the remainder, a different psalm. They stuck them together and somehow they came up with this. They, there is a change there. We'll see that as we go through the psalm. But they're not two separate psalms. Uh, it's a single song... This is the inspired songbook. It's a single song expressing in two stanzas that the worship of God is to be understood as creator and redeemer. Those two things are, are emphasized in these two, two stanzas. So let's look at this together. You have an outline there you can follow along, but basically the first call to worship entails verses one through five. He gives a stated approach and explanation for worship. Notice the approach in verses 1 and 2 where the community of the redeemed are summoned to come together for the purpose of corporate worship and celebration. Now, coming from my Baptist background, it's kind of interesting that the invitation is at the beginning instead of at the end of the sermon. Here it's right at the beginning. So here's the invitation to come. And... <clears throat> And notice the appeal, verse 1, O come, let us sing and shout joyfully. So there's this exhortation to come together. Uh, it's something that's found a lot, a lot in the Scripture. We notice that several places in the Scripture uses this same expression, O come. In Genesis 11, where they're building the Tower of Babel, uh, then they said one to another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly and build a tower. And of course, a little later, God says, come, let us go down and see what they're doing here. So you have this invitation to come. Isaiah 2, 3, it's all over the Old Testament. It's come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And of course, the greatest invitation is that from our Lord Jesus Christ, where he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come. So here's the appeal to come together. In this case, come, let us sing. Uh, again, let us sing expresses something of the corporate togetherness, uh, corporate worship, not a private worship. I think our culture is fixated on private worship and we've lost an understanding of corp coming together and corporately worshiping God as the body of, of believers, if you will. But this is a corporate worship uh, expressing our oneness as a people of God, our oneness of purpose, the worship God by means of singing. Now let's come and sing for joy, it says in Psalm 92.1. Now, coming for God 
with song is not the only way to come. We're told in Psalm 62 and Psalm 65 that we're to come before the Lord in silence. Uh, we're told in uh, Psalm 56 we're to come weeping. But the normal way to come, the regular way we come before the Lord is with singing, like we were doing this morning. We come to the Lord. Our approach to God normally is singing, corporate singing, corporate worship. Notice he says, come let us sing, let us shout joyfully. I don't think this is the basis for shouting Baptist, even though that's kind of my background. I've been in churches that a lot of hooping and hollering going on. But this is not really encouraging that, that you go hooping and hollering in the church. But basically he is saying here when he says, let us shout joyfully, he's basically telling us that we're not to just drift into God's house preoccupied and apathetic. Tepid worship is an insult to God. You ever stood beside someone singing? They're just moving their lips. They're really not singing. I remember going to a, a Bible study once where some believers had come out of a cult. They were excited about knowing who Jesus really was. And we were in this little living room about 25 people, and they, they stood up to sing a song. It scared me. It scared me. They sang it so powerfully. They were delighted to sing. You talk about singing, shouting joyfully to the Lord. Our worship should not be characterized as misery, dullness, half-heartedness, but there should be a sense of exuberance, the exuberance of a shout, singing, you know, and can it be that I should gain? That's, that's what he's talking about here. Let's shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. And again, this, this approach depicts an unashamed, holy enthusiasm, a vigor, a robust intensity of heart. And then he goes on to tell us toward what or, or who. The object of this singing is to the Lord. To the Lord, the rock of our salvation. Our singing is not a performance for men. We're singing to the Lord. It's to Him. Uh, and, and this, uh, this, uh, <clears throat> idea of rock here has nothing to do with form or style of music. It's talking about the one we're singing to. Uh, it speaks something of His character. Uh, the character of our Savior that we've come to worship. The, the rock of our Jeshua. The rock of our salvation. God is the rock of our salvation. The beautiful metaphor of strength and stability unchanging, steadfast. He's our refuge. He's the one we build our life on. The wise man built his house on the rock. We build our life on Christ, the rock. And so we're singing to the rock. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, Psalm 18 says. My deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 19. We, we like this psalm. Um, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in my, thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my salvation. So here, the, the reference is that we're singing, the object we're singing to and for is the Lord, our rock. Then he gives the purpose of our singing here in verse 2. <clears throat> Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. And again, it reminds us 
that corporate worship is more than just uh, physically gathering around sacred things or or just uh, singing or, or a Bible study or something like that. We've actually come to have an audience with God Himself. That's that's what we've come here for. We've come to come before the presence. Let us come before His presence, it says here. Uh, the worship response involves drawing near with the... I think it, there should be an eagerness. You know, on Christmas morning, we never had to wake our kids up. You know, we never had to wash their face and shake them and say, hey, come on, come on, get out of bed. They were there waiting on us. And that's the way we should approach worship of God with the eagerness of a kid at Christmas time. I can't wait to go into His presence, to enter into His presence with singing and joy and praise and worship. And this word, we enter into His presence, is literally eastward. It's, it's, uh, and it comes out before His face. We come before God's face, His smiling face. In your presence is fullness of joy, it says. So we're coming in the joyful aspect or anticipation of coming before our Heavenly Father's face. And then he adds, let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. So whereas we draw near to God in worship and praise and joyful song with eagerness, if you will, with enthusiasm, we're coming to have an audience with God. We're drawing near to God. And as we draw near to God, this should involve this conscious, deliberate attitude adjustment. We should always come with grateful hearts. Thanksgiving. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. A worshiping heart should be a a heart filled filled with gratitude to God. We should we should be grateful for all that God has done for us, especially remembering past benefits. It says in Psalm 100 that closes this series of psalms, we're to enter into His gates with thanksgiving, and into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless His name. Charles Spurgeon says we are permitted to bring our petitions, but we're obligated to bring our thanksgiving. I mean, how horrible is it that God has done so much for us that we're not grateful? We should always be grateful for all that God has done for us. It goes on to say, let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. And again, our grateful praise um, should, shouldn't be characterized as dull, half-hearted, but it should be something that's expressed with joyful, holy enthusiasm, exuberance, the robust intensity of a shout, if you will. Shout joyfully to the Lord with psalms. Isaiah 51.11 says, he, So the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Notice this joy is expressed with psalms. I know we don't use the Psalter much in our singing, but perhaps we should. A lot of our hymns are based on some psalm, some Old Testament psalm, if you will. But I think it does convey the idea of singing back to God His inspired Word. Our songs should express revealed truth. They should be doctrinally correct. They should be things that are uplifting and edifying and, and, and are accordance to God's Word, not some 
the 7-Eleven mumbo-jumbo mantra that we sing over and over, but it should be something that edifies us. It's something that's scriptural, that's based on the Word of God, if you will. Singing with, with psalms, if you will, as Paul says. We utilize every artistic mean and grateful praise to God to sing back to Him what He has done for us. Again, Spurgeon says, with harp and hymn and holy delight. That's our worship should we should approach God in this way. Now the psalmist goes on uh, to give the explanation here in verses three through five. It says, "For that he it appeal is to come in this manner," and then he gives the reason for, uh, if you will, for the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. So here's the explanation: every approach to God in worship should express this grateful exuberance and cheerfulness for He alone is worthy of such worship, if you will. He's great, uh, says in verse 3. The Lord is a great God. Uh, true worship always understands, I think, who God is. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of worship out there that ignorant. it's ignorant worship. You know, Paul talks about I wouldn't have you be ignorant brethren, but there's a lot of ignorant worship out there because you wonder, well, who is it that we worshiped here? What, who really got, is the center of our worship? And basically it says here that God is great <clears throat> and, uh, and we are to worship Him. We, we ought to certainly know the one we've come to worship. Jesus tells the woman at the well, we worship that which we know. We know who it is that we've come to worship. She didn't know. He knew. We should know. Um, we know who it is. We know the one true God. And interesting that this verse 3 gives three different titles for God in this one verse. Uh, he's, he's Jehovah, the Lord. Uh, in that sense, He is the eternal self-existent One who keeps His promises. That's who it is that we've come to worship. And then He is He's God, Elohim. That's the God Almighty, the powerful One, if you will. And then he's also king. Melech is a Hebrew word for the great king of kings. And Psalm 96 in, in this series tells us, give to the Lord glory due His name. Worthy of His name. So we're coming to the Lord. We know who it is that we've come to worship. We want our worship to correspond to who He really is. He is worthy of, of, our, of our worship, our great worship. Uh, it says, for the Lord is great. Uh, the emphasis is on the greatness of God, uh, affirming our faith and confidence in the magnificence of God. He alone is the preeminent one. He's the one that deserves all of our attention. He is the ultimate concern of our life. Psalm 115, 1-4 says, Not unto us, Lord, not unto us, but unto Your name give glory, because of Your mercy, because of Your truth, why shall the Gentiles say, where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. The idols are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. He's not some dead God. He is the living God. He is God Almighty, the great God. He's a great king above all gods, goes on to say. Verse 3. The actual existence of other gods is denied actually in Scripture. There's no, there's no such thing as another God. There's only one God. Uh, other gods that men worship are considered to be empty, contemptible, 
fictions of man's imagination. Just idols. Idolatry. Idolatry is the soul's occupation with anything other than God as the ultimate concern of life. Anything you put before God is an idol. You know, it might be fishing, it might be golf, I don't know, what. maybe your job. But you can't displace God. Anything that displaces God is considered an idol. It says in Psalm 96.4, for the gods of the people are idols. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. So anything that takes away from God, diminishes God's holy place, is demonic and devilish. Um, <clears throat> it says in 1 John 5.21, we still have idols today, yeah? 1 John 5.21 says, little children, keep yourself from idols. You be careful who it is that you, is first place in your life, the ultimate concern of your life. And then I like there's, uh, it says in uh, Acts 14 where uh, they're wanting to make Paul and uh, 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 Silas, Paul and Silas, I think in that case, that one was Hermes and one was Zeus, but they were going to offer sacrifices to them. And Paul says, <clears throat> we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. He's the great God. There's none beside Him. And this is what the psalmist is directing our attention to, explaining why our, what our worship involves. And then he goes on to give examples of His greatness in his psalms. Uh, certain arenas, if you will, under his control. Basically, it's the, it's the depths and the height. God controls the depths and the heights. He controls everything or under his rule, if you will. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing's too hard for you. That's the God we worship. Nothing's impossible for our great God. He can do anything except deny himself and fail to do what he has promised he would do. Then he rules. I've got this. He rules and he runs things. He uh, basically this expression in his hand speaks of uh, the sovereign dominion or control. Everything's in his hand. He he rules everything. He controls absolutely everything. Nothing. There's no accident. There's no chance. No happenstance. Because God controls everything in all creation. And it includes the depths and the heights. I can't keep my lawn mowed. But God controls everything. I, I have trouble with you know running a vacuum cleaner. I have trouble running a saw. My son told me this week, did you drop this saw or something? <laughs> it wouldn't cut a straight line. But anyway, I, I can't do these things. But God can and actually, this is, uh, this is meant to be a slap in the face of false worship. Most pagan gods were limited to like the netherworld in the deep or some mountain peak or some body of water or some land area. But he goes on to say, in his hands are the deep places of the earth. This word for deep is, our word, is, a, is usually translated in the Septuagint, the abuso, the abyss. That the the abyss, something to be searched out in the furthest depths, the dark unknown places of the world, vast unexplored regions of the earth. 
And everything buried beneath it are not ruled in this case by some pagan god or some devil or some Washington bureaucrat, even though they probably qualify more for that than the devil. But anyway, uh, it's interesting. You get the book of Revelation. It talks about the, uh, the angel of the abyss, Abaddon and Apollyon. Uh, well, God's going to throw them into Hades into the lake of fire. So he's the one that's in control of the deep. He is, he runs everything. And also the heights of the hills are his as well. This word here is horn or peak, mountaintops. Uh, this is a symbol of the inaccessibility and strength, if you will. They carry the idea of, actually it's kind of the word panting, weariness. I mean, I had a friend in Tennessee, and they had a three-stop driveway. You had, you're walking to the mailbox back to the house. You had to stop three times. It was uphill. <laughs> it was a long driveway. So this is, these things are, are wearisome and tiresome to us. Uh, the, the idea of the heights here. But, uh, with, with God, it's no problem at all. The, the depths and the heights convey something of the vastness the extent and the immensity of God's control and rulership. He, he runs all these things. He rules these things. It's interesting that Bruce Springsteen thinks he's the boss, but he's not the boss. He's going to find that out one of these days. There's only one boss, and that's the God we worship here. He rules everything. It's interesting, <clears throat> the challenges of the depths and the heights uh, something to us, but they're nothing for God. It says in Romans 8, Paul use, utilizes this expression in Romans 8, 28, 8 to 38. He says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, or depth shall be able to separate us from the love of God. So here he takes this same idea that God rules everything. He runs everything, he goes on to say. The sea is his, he made it. Uh, he formed it. This is a, is a, the basis for God running and ruling everything is they belong to him because he made it. They're his. They belong, he has ownership or dominion or authority over all the world. And he's never relinquished that control. He still is the owner and the ruler of everything under this, under the sun. So his sovereign authority extends over both land and sea. Not only the depths and the heights, but also the land and the sea. The sea is his for he made it. On day three of creation, God gathered the waters into one place, called them sea. Genesis 1-9. The ocean is no minor thing. It's no little piddly thing. I mean, water in Oklahoma is kind of a piddly thing. But the ocean covers three-fourths of the globe. Three-fourths of our world is covered by the sea. It's something that's vast and powerful, limiting and mysterious. I, I just read recently where they scientists have discovered that... Uh, uh, Underneath the earth, there's enough water to replace the surface water on the earth ten times. 
you know, I don't even like swimming in deep water. I, I don't. You know, I, I swim in the ocean. Not, I can't touch bottom. I'm ready to head back for sure. I don't like that. But think of the depths of the ocean and, and, and the awesomeness of that. The overwhelming vastness, the, lim- the limitless compared to man and how it perplexes us. No problem for God. The ocean's His. He made it. He cro- controls it. He runs it. And, the, and His hands form the dry land. This, this word is to squeeze into shape. To form, uh, refers to God's creative power and providing a, a place for man, His image bearer. I mean, we don't have gills. We need some dry surface to walk around on, to live on. So He, he created the land for us, if you will. And uh, we worship uh, the God that runs and rules everything. It says that he set the limits of the sea, Job 38.11. I, and I said, thus far you shall come, but no further, and here you shall, your proud wave shall stop. So why doesn't it cover all the earth? Because God said so. God said, you can only go this far, and that's it. And his creation uh, obeys him. I think it's interesting that when the sailors understood who the God was that Jonah was running away from, they were absolutely terrified. You mean you're running away from the creator of the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea? And they were terrified. This should comfort us. This is comforting to know that God runs everything and He rules everything. Then the second call to worship, verse 6. This section actually continues to expand and develop those basic ingredients we find in the first stanza that constitute true worship of God. There's this renewal of call in verse 6. It says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. So it's interesting that verse 6 is the central verse. You come this, this is the very center of the psalm. We come to the dead center of the psalm, verse 6. It's kind of the turning point in the psalm. It does parallel and intensify verses 1 and 2, but it moves us on from joyous celebration and praise to this humbling, jarring recognition of the responsibility we have to the one we worship. Joyful praise here is now balanced with humble reverence. It's not some... Worship is not some toe-tappy, happy-clappy, jamboree approach to God. But here we move from lifting up our voice in praise to God and hastening our feet to come before His presence. Now we, we come to bending the knee. Now we come to bow down before Him. So this is kind of a change. This is a shift, if you will. He says in verse 6, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. The point of kneeling or bowing down it literally means to make oneself small. It, it, it's, it's, you know, they do that to the queen. They, they bet she's big, I'm small. It's, uh, uh, I know it's expressive of one's devotion to God here. And actually, uh, kneeling or bowing down is an act of contrition, a concrete act of contrition. We don't do a whole lot of that, but we should, certainly should in our heart. Posture is not everything, but it is something. It does say something. It says that I have accepted my place in the divine scheme of things 
as I acknowledge God's rule and authority over me, like the wise men who came before the little baby in the manger, they all knelt down and presented their gifts to Him. So we're to come, let us worship and bow down before Him. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. The one, our Creator, our Maker. And of course, submission here is to the Lord, not to some lady. It's not to a saint, but to the Savior. Not to a martyr, but to our Maker. We come in humble reverence before our Maker. And it it gives this, verse 7 states the assurance for He is our God. Now, verse 7, it's more than just a reason for worship. It's a, it's kind of an exclamation of the fact that truly He's our God. Something that should be understood in our approach to Him. <clears throat> Notice our Maker kind of connects us with the first section, God our Creator, the primary focus of that section. And if you look at Psalm 100, verse 3, it follows the same guideline, the same basic division where it says, Know that the Lord, He is our God. It is He who made us and not we ourselves." And that's what's it reiterated here. But then it adds this further dimension, and we are the people and the sheep of His pasture. So now we come to God our shepherd. So He's a creator, but He's also our redeemer, our shepherd. We are His people, and that's certainly a title we'll never be worthy of. We sinners that are redeemed by His grace We'll never be worthy to be called the people of God only because of what Christ has done for us. We belong to Him not only because He made us, but He has redeemed us. We are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. This metaphor of a shepherd actually describes someone who's in charge. He is, he's the leader. The shepherd is the leader. Is God your leader? Is He in charge? Well, this is what you are our, our shepherd. You are a leader. Uh, this word is used in the ancient Near East to designate people that were teachers, prophets, priests, judges, and especially kings. But again, it's someone that's responsible for those that belong to them, belong to their care, their welfare, their responsibility is placed in his hand. And of course, in, in this case, through the purchase of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Alexander McLaren says, God, our shepherd, provides guidance, guardianship, companionship, sustenance, absolving all of us sheep from care, uh, whose only duty is to meekly follow and quietly trust in Him. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What the psalmist says in 23. And of course, Jesus is the good shepherd. Psalm 79.13 says, so we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. To all generations will tell of your praise. Then we come to a real change in the psalm. Now it's like, oh, wait a minute here. Everything was going along real good. Now all of a sudden, there's a shift. A real shift. At this point, this dramatic change in mood in verse 7. Notice it says, He is our God. We're the people who pasture the sheep of His hand. Then all of a sudden it abruptly says, Today, if you hear His voice, harden not your heart. So it's like, we're going through all this other stuff. And all of a sudden, 
there's this dramatic change. Today, if you hear His voice, I, I like the, the song, I, heard, I, hear the, I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me in wrath. If it's sung right, it's, it's real dirge, and then it, I came to Jesus. And it, 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 it's, a, it's like stepping out of a cave. You know, it, it's a change. It's a shift. This is kind of the opposite here. It was all sweet and light, sweetness and light. Now it's, whoa, wait a minute here. This is seriousness at this point. It shifts for us. Uh, it, it moves from, uh, this approaching in worship and praise and singing and joyfulness and these kinds of things to, uh, this mood, if you will, uh, actually, if, if it's the, if this, uh, if this, uh, uh psalm, is a psalm to be sung during the holiday mood of the Feast of Tabernacles, it basically shifts around to recall the wilderness wanderings. In other words, we go from camping, a nice camping trip with God, to the wandering in the wilderness in a way that's really, it doesn't romanticize it at all. It shows you the harshness of their response to God. It's also a change in speaker. There's a change in mood, but it's also a change in speaker. We shift from the worship prompter speaking in the first section. Now guess who's talking? God is talking at this point. It's like God says, I'll take it from here. <laughs> Let me say something right here. And so it's like, <clears throat> it reminds us again that true worship involves a word from God. There needs to be an exposition of the Scripture when we worship. Um, we need to bring, say what God says. I don't think it should be a theological dissertation about the Word. It should be what the Word says. I'm bringing to you what this says. That's expositional preaching. That's, that's real worship. When this happens and you hear God speak from His Word, then you're in a worship service at that point, bud. <laughs> then you're hearing the Word of God. And now this is where this psalm has taken us to this place where we're now hearing a message from God Himself. And because we're His sheep, and we're told what God expects from us, having drawn near Him to worship, he, he, at this point, makes this jarring appeal, if you will, as to how we need to respond. Uh, and this will determine whether or not we truly worship God. So we've talked, we've done all the trappings of worship, but have we really worshiped? And this is the determiner as to whether or not I have actually worshiped God today. How do we do that? Well, does two things. First tells us when. Today. Today, if you will hear his voice. This appeal carries the idea of expectancy, urgency. There's this right now present opportunity. Not when I get home and think about it, but right now when I hear the word or receive the word in. Today, it's the best time to respond to God's grace. Today refers to the time that I have right now 
to do something, to embrace Christ or to live for Christ. It's never safe to resume on tomorrow. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is, is, is hammering here in Hebrews 3 and 4. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, where he says, I have heard you in an acceptable time. In the day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And it goes, uh, Spurgeon again says, if we put off repentance another day, we have another day to repent of and a day less to repent in. So, so it's today, that's the when, but, but the what is, if you hear His voice. Today, if you hear His voice. So, and we've drawn near to God with robust singing and praise and humble thanksgiving to worship Him. This last section tells us what constitutes the ultimate goal and the primary ingredient of true worship. We've come before God to hear and to hearken, to listen and to respond to His Word. Apparently, we have the opportunity to respond positively or negatively. There's no trophy for showing up. It's either positive or negative. Notice the positive aspect here is if you would hear His voice. The vital part of worship involves listening. Listening to the Word of God. Uh, the expressed will of God. Uh, we need to pause and to ponder and reflect on what God has to say. Uh, Paul says, faith comes by hearing the Word. Hearing the Word of God. Um, it's interesting that Jesus talked to the religious leaders of His day and He had told them about what's going to happen to them in the future, 70 A.D. basically. And He says, they'll not leave one stone upon another because you didn't know the time of your visitation. You didn't hear what I told you. This is coming on you because you didn't listen to what I told you. True hearing always includes Heeding, acting upon, doing something about what we hear. If I say your house is on fire and you say, isn't that interesting? I'll make a note of that. No, you should do something about it. If God tells you something and you understand it, you need to act upon it. In essence, I've truly worshipped God when I allow what He has said to change my life. I've, that's when I've worshipped. When, when I've when, when what he tells me, I act upon. As James 1.22 says, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And Samuel says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Don't go through the motion. You, you do what God tells you to do. That's the thing. Disobedience and misery go together just as joyful praise and submissive obedience go together. Praise from a disobedient heart is a damning not a virtuous thing. So we have this positive response uh, to hearing His voice. You will hear and heed His voice. And then you have this negative. There's this however. Do not harden your heart. Which is the exact opposite of hearing and heeding. So if you're not doing the one, you're doing the other. And every time we refuse to submit to God's revealed will and authority, it sets in motion this hardening process of reprobation 
which confirms us in rebellion and unbelief. Think of the Pharaoh. Think of the children of Israel that died in the wilderness. So this is the stated warning. <clears throat> and, and he's concluding this psalm by giving this classic example of a negative response of faithful disobedience to what God has told him. You can read this in Exodus 17, Numbers 20, Psalm 81. But he gives this illustration here and this warning. He says in verses, verse 8, <clears throat> as in the rebellion, don't harden your heart as in the rebellion at Mirabah, which means strife and contention, as in the day of trial, Massa, trial and testing in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me and tried me, though they saw my works. So he, he, God is going to use this illustration of a historical event with regard to Israel. Uh, there are two places in, in, in their wandering, if you will. Uh, the one place name was Mirabah, which means striving against God, and Masa to test or to try the patience of God. These two incidents were at the beginning and at the end of the 40 years of wandering. Wandering. <clears throat> there were no water. So they grumbled and they complained against Moses. And of course, Moses struck the rock. Actually, in both instances, he struck the rock. <clears throat> um, he should have spoken to the rock the second time, which Paul tells us was, was actually Christ. You don't, you don't kill Christ twice. You don't strike. You don't, Christ doesn't die for you two times. He only dies once. You speak to him after that. Both times the people were ready to stone Moses, God's messenger. Even after witnessing God's mighty work of the Red Sea and providing for them in the wilderness, they were daring to challenge the Lord, demanding he prove his love by altering his providence to suit them is kind of the height of insolence, if you will. Obstinate defiance of God. As Jesus will tell Satan, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Don't push things, don't, don't be pushing back on God. So you have this illustration as in the rebellion, and then he, he gives this evaluation in verse 10. For 40 years I loathed that generation. His sinful perversity of rejecting the Word of God is something disgusting to God. I know the King James Version says he was grieved with that generation. That's too light. That's too easy of a word. Actually, the word here is he loathed that generation. This means to be disgusted at something as nauseating and shameful. And God like true repentance ought to. We ought to loathe our sin. We don't. We love our sin. We loathe our sin. God loathes sin. Forty years says something about the patience of God in the light of the persistent perversity of those that receive so much light. These people had had the Word, have God speak to them. I mean, you can't get any more benefit than that. But certainly it's a no small thing to grieve a long-suffering God, is it? Ooh, that just sounds scary, doesn't it? God, long-suffering. But he, you got him to the place. He loathed this situation. This generation of faithless Israelites repeatedly proved over 40 years they were never really trusting of God. And of course, suspicion and mistrust 
pretty deadly on a relationship that's based on trust. We don't trust you, but I know we're related to you by trust. Notice he goes on to say, and he said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts. They do not know my way. Constant apostasy, the pattern refusing to take God at His Word, proof they never really had learned anything. They were incapable of being led. Talk about all we like sheep have gone astray. Certainly are always going astray. These were a favored people, frequently warned, greatly blessed, yet constantly murmuring, complaining. You can't worship God with an unbelieving, skeptical heart any more than you can truly worship God without being changed. Can't worship God without being changed. Not everybody that shows up for worship will enjoy promised rest. These people are go astray in their hearts. They do not know my way. I swore in my wrath, he says, they shall not enter my rest. Actually, it's kind of the underlying word there is over my dead body. You're going to enjoy rest with that unbelieving rejecting, I don't want this. You Take it to somebody else, God. I don't need it. That attitude, you're, you're really in trouble. The consequence there is to bring about the strongest displeasure of God. It says He swore an oath. And of course, an oath from God is truth delivered with a vengeance here. Uh, the consequence of their hardening and, and instead of heeding is that they were not allowed to enter the promised land. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, Verse 5, but with most of those, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Should a believer be allowed to make new maribas and <clears throat> masses in Cana? What about taking this skeptical, sour, suspicious, unbelieving heart to heaven? That ain't going to happen. <laughs> God's not going to allow that to happen. They're not going to enter my wrath because they rejected my word. Technically, this word enter my rest. Rest is an interesting expression in the Old Testament. It involves the experience embracing the, the promised goal of God for his redeemed people. There's a there's this reform there's this formula in the Old Testament repeated fifty times. It, it's three basic things to it. You will be my people. I'll be your God and I'll dwell among you in eternal fellowship. That's the goal of God for His people. You're my people. I'll be your God and we'll dwell together. That's what salvation is all about. It, it, it accomplished that through the work of Christ. Our part on this requires that I hear His voice and enabled by His Holy Spirit, I turn in repentance from human effort, belligerence, self-sufficiency, whatever it is, and I turn in faith to embrace the provision of God and His salvation in Jesus Christ. It says in Hebrews 4, 9, there, there yet remains a rest for the people of God, for he that has entered into his rest has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. Psalm 116, Return to your rest, O my soul. Certainly, <clears throat> we need to... I think Jeremiah 6 talks about returning to the old ways, the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk in it, and you'll find rest for your souls. This is the old path, the Word of God. Not some contemporary idea of what worship ought to be or what your Christian life ought to be. This is the old path right here. Return to the old path, and you'll find rest, and you can walk in that. 
And of course, the greatest passage is Matthew eleven twenty eight, where Jesus says, Come to Me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you the rest. It's a free gift from God, but you've got to come to Me. So let me close by saying that Psalm 95 ends with this kind of a jarring abruptness. It's not what you would expect. It sacrifices literary grace for moral urgency. There's something important. Your house is on fire. That kind of urgency here. God is a great God. And basically, the psalmist tells us we should always come eagerly before His presence with joyful, robust singing, with gratitude and praise for His greatness. Uh, it, it, it should be tempered with humility, recognizing Him as both our Maker, our Creator, and our Shepherd, Redeemer. Uh, we come purposely to hear and to heed His Word to us. Keep in mind that we cannot truly worship Him without being changed. And there's no change without hearing and acting on the Word of God. You can get all this other stuff right. But if you miss this, you miss God's rest. You still can't come into God's rest of eternal fellowship if we don't trust Him and hearken to His Word. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. You know, if they rejected the servant Moses and that brought ruin, what about rejecting the Son of God? Think of the ruin that that would bring to a heart. He's the great shepherd of the feet of the sheep. Are you resting in the Son? Resting in His finished work? Psalm 2.12 says, Kiss the Son or embrace the Son lest He be angry. You perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. This enthronement psalm teaches us that I have not truly worshipped God until I hear what He says and I heed that. And I make it mine. Lord, we pray that You would help us to truly learn to worship You. Each time the Word of God is open to us, we hear Your voice from it. Help us to be ready to embrace it and to heed it with joyful hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.